Our sermon text this morning will be Luke chapter 4 and looking at verses 1 to 3. We're actually looking at verses 1 to the very first part of verse 3. I'm going to read right through from Luke chapter 4 verse 1 to Luke chapter 4 verse 13. Um, We're just going to slow down for this section of the scripture and look at it over the coming weeks. Um, So before I read that, I'll pray, then we'll read. Please join me in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks for your word, the Holy Scriptures, and we pray, Father, that you would help us to understand and to apply that which we hear here today. Father, we pray that you would be giving us ears that hear, eyes that see, and hearts that are understanding and obedient. And this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke chapter 4, starting at verse 1. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up, And showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem, and set him on the pinnacle of the temple, And said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they shall bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Amen. And I just want to read the particular part that we're studying this morning. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, and there we'll stop the reading. God sent Jesus to undo the harm that sin had done to mankind. God sent Jesus to reverse the fall. Jesus did more than just reverse the fall. Think of it. Adam, before the state of the fall, was in a condition of being the son of God, being created righteous and holy, yet he could fall from that state. Jesus, when he saves somebody, gives them the gift of eternal life at the time that he saves them. The gift is not conditional eternal life. Jesus didn't say the one who trusts in me, as long as he remains trusting, well, perhaps he will have salvation. He said the one who puts his trust in me, he shall live. He has eternal life. Jesus has come to do the work that the Father has given him. He has come, and I want us to um, see something here now as we look at this. I want us to see that 
Luke is using a particular theme here. Turn back in the Gospel of Luke to Luke chapter 3 and look at verse 22. This is the baptism of Jesus. We'll read 21 and 22. Now when all the people were baptised, and when Jesus also had been baptised and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Now look at the final verse of chapter 3, where Luke speaks of Adam, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, and then finally he gets to the son of Adam, and Adam is called the son of God. Looking at verse 3 of our reading, the very beginning part of verse 3, the devil said to him, if you are the son of God. And the devil again says at verse 9, if you are the son of God. You've got a theme here running through basically um, midway through chapter 3, all the way through to the end of this um, narrative of Jesus being tempted by Satan. And the theme is concerning someone who is being called the son of God. One son of God was tested and failed. But Jesus, called in the book of Romans the last Adam, Jesus, the son of God, who was proclaimed at the beginning of God, at the gospel of Luke to be called the son of God, this son of God is also to be tested. Let's just look at it and I'll um, make a few um, observations as we move forward. The first thing that I want us to see is the emphasis that Luke places on the person of the Holy Spirit. Verse, verse 1 of chapter 4. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit. Full. The word simply means literally full, to the exception of all other. There is no other influence upon Jesus in spiritual terms at this moment other than the Holy Spirit of God. And Jesus full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. He was led by the Spirit. That word translated here in my ESV, by the Spirit, could read in the Spirit. And he was led in the Spirit in the wilderness. It's exactly the same word that is translated as in after the word spirit in the ESV. He was led by or in the spirit in the wilderness. Interestingly, and I'll just point this out, we won't turn there, but when Mark in the Gospel of Mark speaks of the temptation of our Lord, he uses the word driven or forced. And he says the Holy Spirit drove or forced Jesus into the wilderness. It was, it was a compulsion. He had to go there. He didn't have a choice but to go there. He was full of the Holy Spirit. And you would think, and, you know, I, I just make this point. The televangelists, the popular TV guys, when they talk about someone being full of the Holy Spirit, they describe this life of everything going right, joy and blessing, and every door just opens and, you you know, you, you give some money and God returns tenfold the amount of money and, Nothing ever seems to be going wrong in your life and you have all the power and all the strength. Well, here we have Jesus himself. 
full of the Holy Spirit, being led by and in the Holy Spirit, where to? The war zone. Into the battle. All of the commentators make mention of the fact that this wilderness of Judea is one of the sort of harshest, most barren environments that can be found anywhere in the world, that in, in this place um, nothing is easy. There's no nice. There's no nice parts. There, there are no nice creatures that live there. It's wild. It's rugged. It's dangerous. Where does the spirit send him? Off to war. You know, you, you've come to fight. He's sent out into the wilderness there to do battle with the devil. Now we read in Genesis chapter three. And remember Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Remember chapter 3, verse 38 of the Gospel of Luke. We're told that Adam was called the son of God. So Jesus is about the mission of undoing that which Satan and Adam, through his fall into sin, have done. Luke has set up, as it were, a war, a battle. But there's something different about it, isn't there? When when we think about the temptation of Adam, he's in that place made especially for man to dwell in. He's in the Garden of Eden. And we're told that every kind of good fruit grew in the Garden of Eden. We're told that he wasn't going to be struggling for food. You know, that whole sweat of your brow to get food, that was the curse. That was the result of sin. Adam was in a place of blessing and what's more, Adam had company. He had his wife. Adam had authority as the firstborn son of God and he did not use it or exercise it to defend what God had given him. Jesus is sent into the wilderness alone. It says there in verse 2, for 40 days. And, you know, I've just got a a list of things here. When we consider that number 40, you're saying, why 40 days? What's 40 days all about? 40, yep. 40 years was the period of Israel's wilderness wanderings. Yep. 40 lashes was the most punishment that a person could receive under a Jewish court. Forty days was the period of uncleanness after the birth of a child. Forty days was the duration of the flood. Ezekiel, in the book of Ezekiel at chapter 4, was told that he had to bear the iniquity of Judah for 40 days. And 40 days was the length of time that Moses fasted on the mountaintop when he went up to be with God and to receive the law. Forty days. So... What the scripture is telling us here, or or, or that repetition and the importance of 40, it's not telling us that Jesus is the second Moses. It's not saying literally that. But remember, it was Moses who said, one would come from among the brethren, one like me, and you will listen to him. And so things are being repeated. And we're being invited to consider all the things that 40 represented in times past. 40 years, the earth was washed by the flood. I'm sorry, 40 days. 40 40 days on the mountain to receive 
the law of God. Jesus is 40 days in the wilderness. Now, if you look, if I don't know if everyone's reading the ESV, but it says he was being tempted by the devil. So not only was he there 40 days, not only was he not eating, but throughout that 40 days, there is the process of temptation. There's a process of being under attack. How would you go under 40 days of constant attack? <laughs> you know, uh, I, uh, we had an incident up at the property on which Lisa and I were working during the week. I made a dumb mistake. I damaged some equipment. I fell within 40 seconds in terms of sinning at that moment. I, 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 I lost it within 40 seconds, easily. It wouldn't, you know, it was 40 half seconds. It was, you know, it was that, it was that simple. It was that easy. 40 days being tempted. Yet from the Gospel of Matthew, it reads at Matthew chapter 4, verse 2, and after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. So here's the picture. Being tempted for a period of 40 days, but at the end of that 40 days, there comes, as it were, a, a climactic battle. At the end of 40 days, there comes the ultimate confrontation. I, I almost wonder if in my mind, um, you know, sometimes, you know, these things are not specifically said in the scripture, but it would appear to me that this is possible. Lesser temptations were being presented along evil spirits. You know, send out a soldier. He comes back and says, I failed. Send out a non-commissioned officer. He comes back and says, I failed. Send out a commissioned officer. He comes back and says, I failed. And then says, okay, all of you guys have failed. I'll go myself. <laughs> I think the temptation was building and, and we've come to what was sort of the ultimate testing. And he ate nothing during those days. And here, here you know, the, it's, it's called the understatement, you know, the, the understatement, that type of statement that says more than you could imagine. And when they were ended, he was hungry. 40 days, at the end of 40 days, he was hungry. This is the time of the testing. Adam's in the garden, fresh fruit all around him, no need to work for it. God has given him everything. He has righteousness. He has something to protect. And yet... Now, Jesus is hungry. My friends, at the moment of weakness, honestly, at the moment of weakness, we're not fighting an enemy who fights fair. We don't fight an enemy who holds back. You know, to give sort of, in a way, it's sort of a brutal sort of illustration. But honestly, when I was in high school and there was a fight between a couple of boys, if someone knocked someone over, we stopped. It was just sort of a done thing. If someone hit the ground, you stopped. And if he said he'd had enough, you didn't do any more than that. You backed off. That was when I was that young, when I was that stupid, that was the way a fight unfolded. But now you look on YouTube and look at the way people fight now. Someone goes on the ground and they start trying to jump on their head. You know, yeah, they just, there's no restraint. There's madness. Well, I think that's because people are given over to their sins and our society is far less godly or Christian than ever it used to be. And I'm not saying that I and my friends were Christians nor holy. We weren't, you know. 
But there was some kind of restraint. Yeah, there was there was some kind of restraint. We held back. We we weren't trying to kill each other, even when we had a fight. It just doesn't seem that way anymore, does it? Well, that's the work of Satan. You know, when someone's down, he doesn't back off and say, do you want to get up? <laughs> he says, can I finish the job? What? How much, how much damage can I do? And when they were ended, he was hungry. Verse 3 introduces us to the one that I've already spoken of. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God. And that's... That's, how, that's as far as I'm going with the text today, but there's plenty to say. First of all, the devil said. There are many people who find it impossible to believe that there is actually an evil spirit who has power in the earth and uses that power to um, work evil in humanity. But... If you want to try and bring that attitude to the scripture, in the end, all that you can be is an unbeliever. Because the scripture, is, and particularly the New Testament, is filled with references to this evil one and to his work. Turn in your Bibles for a moment to 1 John chapter 2. Sorry, I meant 1 John chapter 5. Turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 5. The epistle of John, towards the back. We'll read from verse 18. We know that everyone who has been born of God, 1 John chapter 5, verse 18. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So let's sort of spread, open this out a bit and try to understand that. Verse 18 tells us that there are people who have been born of God. And it tells us that those who are born of God do not keep on sinning. Notice it's not assuming that they never ever sin. It's saying that they're called back from sin, that they cease from sin. Christians can be tempted to sin. Christians can fall into sin. John also says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God, now he's speaking of Jesus, protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God. So John is now saying we who are in Christ, we have come from God. Our, our life, our citizenship is now heavenly. Our, our birthplace is now heavenly. Where was I born? I was born in Nara Hospital. But in terms of eternity, it counts for almost nothing because I have been born in Christ. I have been born again in Christ. We know that we are from God. And here's something else. And the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. That's where we've got to think carefully and just make sure we understand what's being said. Does that verse say that Satan owns and controls all of this creation? No. First of all, trust. Where do we live, by the way? You know, where, where are we walking? We're on planet Earth. We know that we are from God. Yet we're on planet Earth. 
and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So unless you're confessing that you yourself are under the power of Satan, which would not be a good confession to make, what John is saying is he's using that word world in terms of people who are not people who are not in Christ. They are under the power of the evil one. The world is just, you know, it's it's that massive thing, that massive organisation that, that we all live within and, you know, we deal with it every day, one way or the other. We're dealing with the world. All the world is in the power of the evil one. Um, I'm just thinking of another Bible reference. I want you to turn in the book of Acts and I'm thinking of Acts chapter 26. Acts chapter 26. Now we'll read from verse 12 of Acts chapter 26. And the Apostle Paul is here speaking of his conversion experience and he's testifying before before Herod Agrippa. He's testifying before a Roman court. Verse 12. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. Verse 18, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. There you have that same division of peoples. Paul is preaching to people who are under a particular power. What is the power? They are under the power of Satan. What is the only way out from under that power? That they may receive forgiveness of sins. What are we saved from? It's always worth bearing this question in mind when you you think about these things. What are we actually saved? We're saved from hell? We're saved from sin. We're saved from the power of sin. We're saved from being slaves to Satan. But let's turn to the book of Romans. It might take me a moment to find this text. I often uh, lose my way a little bit here. I'm thinking that it's in Romans chapter 5. Here it is. Okay. What are we actually saved from? Listen to this. Romans chapter 5, and I want you to read verse 9. I'll read it to you. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. What's he saying? God in Christ is saving us from his own judgment. God in Christ is saving us from his own wrath. God is saving us from God. So, concerning the world, 
concerning those who are in the world, concerning those who are under the power of Satan and who are in darkness. Why are they there? How did they get there? Second Thessalonians chapter 2. Now, Paul here is speaking apocalyptically. He's speaking of the days of the end. He's speaking of the judgment of God. But listen to this. The coming, Second Thessalonians chapter 2 and at verse 9. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders. Now, what are false signs and wonders meant to do? But the slavery. They're meant to fool people, trick people, make people believe lies. And with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, listen to this, because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Verse 11. Therefore, God, who? God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Why are the people of the world under the power of Satan? Why are they the way that they are? And the answer is they've been handed over. They've been given over to the power of Satan. The penalty of sin is more sin. You know, wickedness leads to more wickedness. You know, that that classic old Disney cartoon about Pinocchio and every time he told the way, his nose just got bigger. Well, you know, it's, it's not really a great illustration, but sin leads to more sin. A person sins, they harden their heart, they sin more because their heart is hardened. Their heart becomes ever harder. Ever and ever harder, the slavery, the pressure of slavery, the weight of the service just presses down upon them and gets heavier and heavier. Now, am I saying that a person cannot be saved under the strong delusion? That's not what I'm saying. You know, God can save anyone at any time in any way. You know, prostitutes, drug dealers, murderers, criminals, people on death row, you name it. You go as low as you like. God can save those people. And God can break open that hardened heart. But just understand, the mood of the world, the mode of the world, the way the world is, it is that way because God has sent them a strong delusion. They refused to hear. They refused to hear the truth. The gospel was preached to them and they turned away from it. And their hearts were hardened. People who will not believe the truth end up believing lies. It's as simple as that. And they are enslaved. And so we have in the book of Romans at chapter 1, the, the, the process of the Apostle Paul. Paul describes the process of being given over to sin. Starting at verse 18, Romans chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nation have clearly have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. So I just want to stop. I spoke about people being given over to a strong delusion because they refused to believe the truth and so be saved. 
Paul there in 2 Thessalonians was speaking specifically of the preaching of the gospel, that apocalyptic end time. He's saying by this stage, the gospel will have gone out to all the nations, all the world, and even so, yet people do not believe. But here, he's actually speaking of times past, even before the gospel of Jesus had been clearly revealed. He's still saying something. What's he saying? He's saying, look, if people were honest, if people were truly good, if people were truly seeking to do what is right, they would look at creation ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God, the sky above proclaims his handiwork. So even before Jesus took upon himself flesh and walked the earth, even before we had the Gospels, even then God was right to judge humanity and to hand them over to sin. Why? Because all of the earth is the work of God, God is the craftsman, God is the artist, and it all bears his signature. Lisa paints oil paintings and she signs them. All of creation bears his signature and Paul is saying that anyone who is honest can look at creation. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day reveals speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. They can look at all of these things and see this is God's world. God made it. God created. Paul says, because people won't even hear that. Look at what happens in the things that have been made so they are without excuse. Verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honour him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Sorry, Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. So an unbeliever would rather have an image and call that image God. Anything other than the true God. Verse 24. Therefore, God gave them up. God handed them over. God turned them over. God let them go. He released them to their sinful desires. God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to to the dishonouring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. We get it again, verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonourable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Stop. God has given them up. I just want to just go back and give you a little... Just a little bit of the testimony of my conversion. I met a girl. She gave me a Bible. I read the Bible. I started at Genesis. I just worked my way forward. I read four chapters a day. As I worked my way forward through the Old, through the Old Testament, as a non-Christian, I realised something. Now, I'm not saying that at this point I believed the Bible was true, and I'm not saying at this point I was converted. But what I realised was that there were two things in the Old Testament that God actually really hates. He hates them. He despises them. He kills people because of them. He hates idolatry and he hates sexual impurity and they go together. They always come together. All of those pagan religions that you find in the Old Testament included what's called the temple priestess or the temple prostitute. And that temple prostitute was not necessarily always female. A castrated young boy can be a temple prostitute. 
that idolatry and that sexual uncleanness always came together. And if you're interested, I mean, I looked around my my little uh, unit or flat that I was renting at that moment. I was a serious heavy metal fan. I was into some pretty heavy dark music. I had all the paraphernalia around about the place, posters, you name it. And I remember looking around and thinking, well, there's the idolatry. And I had a cupboard and in the cupboard was a stack of porn about as high as your waist. And there's the sexual uncleanness. And I just remember that the moment, and I'm, I understand now, I think that this was God by his Holy Spirit. He was starting to work on me. But I remember just having this very clear thought. If the God in this Bible is real, he... that was the beginning, I think, of me being convicted of sin. But they're handed over. They're handed over. First of all, they're handed over to pursuing idolatry. In pursuing idolatry, they're handed over to unnatural and unclean sexual behaviour. And then look at it, verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them over to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Their whole mind was darkened. You know, even their thoughts were darkened. I mean, the world is just filled with what is in a way absolute stupidity at this moment. I mean, on the one hand, we've got scientific knowledge. You know, we we understand a fair bit now about genetics, etc., the human cell, how human reproduction happens, all of that stuff. We've got all of this sort of understanding. And every cell in my body is male. And the ladies here, every cell in your body is female. You can cut bits off, you can glue bits on, you can change the shape. But here's the fact. Every cell in my body is male and every cell in your body is female. And it doesn't matter if you want to call yourself what you're not. It doesn't change the nature of every cell in your body. It's just foolishness. It's, it's, it's silly nonsense. God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. If you look at that as a stage of descent into judgment and destruction, where are we at at this moment as a nation? I'm not not meaning as individuals, but politically, in terms of governmental policy, where are we at at this moment? Well, basically, you must give approval to those who practice. That's where we're at. You know, you, you must give the politically correct answer under all circumstances. Even if you don't believe it, they expect you to confess with your mouth that which they require of you. We're a nation, I'm sad to say, under a strong delusion and under the judgment of God because we've turned away from the Saviour. We've turned away from the Gospel. We've turned away from our Lord and Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we've done as a nation seem to have come a long way away from the Gospel of Luke, but I think I can tie all this together. So let's get back to the Gospel of Luke in chapter 4. Jesus goes to war with Satan. And my friends, it's a warfare of words. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God. Now that word that's translated if could also be translated since. If you are, since you are. 
the son of God. What was the last spoken word that Jesus heard from God when he was baptized back in Luke chapter 3 at verse 22? God said, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. The devil says, after days of being worn down by lesser temptations, the devil comes to him and says, did it really happen? Are you really the son of God? Are you really the one who has been appointed to be saviour? Do you really think you're going to crush my head? Remember, as we get deeper into this temptative, the devil himself knows what the scripture says. And he also knows that if he's dealing with the true saviour, it has been said that the saviour will bruise his head, will crush his head. And so he says to Jesus, Son of God, you know, was that voice as clear as you thought it was? Are you sure the Holy Spirit descended as a dove and there he remained? Are you sure that you can trust in the things that you've heard? I can only imagine that pretty much all of his life, his mother Mary had told him about his conception. It was miraculous. About his birth, he was born of a virgin. About the visit of the shepherds, about the later visit of the wise men from the east, about the about the escape into Egypt and the return. All of these things. All of his life, he's being taught the scriptures. All of his life, he's being encouraged to understand that he is not just simply a man. He is truly human. He is truly divine. He is the son of God. And he hears that voice. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. And then along comes the tempter. At the moment of weakness. If you are the son of God. My friends, let's um, try and make a little application. And then, um, you know, as I said, I want to handle this whole narrative fairly slowly and there's a whole lot more to come out of this. But let's just try and make a little application. Satan will come to you with a half-truth. The half-truth in that, in that sentence is, are the son of God. You are the son of God. If you are the son of God. And then he puts just a modifier with the truth. If, since, suggesting... Maybe you're not. Outright lies don't really tempt Christians. They really don't. I mean, I, you know, do I need to warn you not to go to a Satanist ceremony at midnight where blood is sacrificed? But what about the kind of temptation that just comes to us in our everyday lives where people are kind of turning us aside, where people are, are kind of uh, encouraging us to compromise with the word of God. What about, for example, and I'll just use a few um, examples, just straight out of my life, temptations that have come my way one time or another. I used to work for a very large company in transport and um, a lot of goods were lost. There, there, there was a very large um, bay or area in the warehouse which was lost goods. The sticker had come off in transit or whatever. No one knew where they came from. No one knew where they were going to. And all this stuff just ends up stored somewhere until someone can actually track it back down or if not, it gets um, gotten rid of. 
and sitting in there was a particular LPG gas bottle and I needed one. And I remember one of the workers there, I said, what's this stuff? I hadn't been there long. He said, oh, he said, that's, that's the, that's the um, lost freight. I said, oh, right. I said, gee, it's a good gas bottle. He said, take it if you want it. No one will care. I was tempted. I needed a gas bottle at that moment. I had a use for a gas bottle at that moment. I was tempted. I nearly reached out to grab it. I'll be honest, I nearly reached out to grab it. It, it took a bit of thought on my part. And I started to realise, hang on, that's not mine. Somebody else did pay for it, and that's not his, and he doesn't have the right to give it to me. It's really not. It's not honesty. That, that was actually a form of stealing. Even if it's lost and no one knows what it is, and even if what they're going to do is end up sending it to a scrap metal merchant, in the end, it's not mine to take, it was not my fellow workers to give, and to take it would ultimately have been a form of stealing. If you don't have the permission of the owner, you don't have the right to take it. You know, it's, it's nice, for example, to have someone admire you and want to flirt with you. Temptation to hell. It's temptation to sin. But it's, it's a nice feeling. That person gave me a second look. That person gave me a, a big smile. That person is looking directly into my eyes more than they ought to. You know, Whatever the temptation is, it usually comes disguised with friendliness. You know, Paul in another place says that Satan can appear as an angel of light. Very few people who would call themselves Christians are tempted to play with the occult but we're tempted to do wrong things in the course of our everyday life. It's easy. It's simple. And everyone around you is doing it and no one would be paying attention if you did it. You drift. You step out of the way. You do what you ought not to do. Satan comes to you and says, uh, since you're the son of God, why worry about it? What's, you know, counselling a young guy not so long back. And... Um, I said to him, can I, can I just try and take a guess at a few of the thought processes that are going through your mind at this particular time? And he said, go for it. I said, first of all, you're thinking that Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew said that to look on a woman with lust in your heart is to commit adultery. And therefore, you're thinking, seeing as I'm already guilty of adultery, I might as well just keep going. Sort of, he honestly looked at me and said, mind. I said, and then there's another thought. You believe in Jesus and your sins are forgiven and you know he's gracious and merciful and if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive you your sins. Therefore, sin now and ask forgiveness later. Yeah, that's gone through my mind too. I've been thinking those things. How do you know? Well, I'm a person. I'm a human being. How do I know? Because I'm fighting the same battle you're fighting. It's the truth. Scripture gets turned against the very purpose for which God gave it. Those passages are given to us as warnings, not as a license. You know, our, our, our salvation is never, ever, ever given to us to be permission to sin. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, my friends, stick to the word of God that you have received. Keep coming back to the word of God that God has given to you. And be very, very careful about friendly invitations to do things that are questionable. Questionable is that they are wrong. It is that they are tainted. So 
Good practice. If there's any doubt, say no. Think it through. Work it out. Let's close in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that our Saviour, the Lord Jesus, did take upon himself flesh and did come to the earth to fight this battle on our behalf. On our behalf, he is our David fighting fighting the giant, Goliath. For we are weak. We could not win this battle ourselves. Our Father, we thank you and praise you that he has come to undo the work that was done in the garden, that he has come to make things right, that we may have fellowship with you through his blood. We thank you and we praise you and we pray, Father, that we would remember that you have made us your own through Jesus Christ our Lord at great cost. Therefore, Father, may we never take this salvation for granted and may we live lives that are holy and Christ-like. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.